0: that? All right. Well, everyone, I'll have everybody take their seats and we'll, we'll get started here this morning. We'll uh, have everybody take their seats. And we'll uh, get started here this morning. There we go. How's that? I should have worn a... All right. Thank you. And uh, we'll get started here this morning. We're going to begin with prayer. And by the way, remind me, we've got to stop 10 minutes early today because we're going to have a special program, uh, a little bit of uh, a prodigal son program. I think we got it started, Bob. I think time's going well, forward. I guess I'm not needed. No. <laughs> no, you're very needed. Oh, thank you. All right, so we'll begin with prayer. Lord, we thank you for our day. We thank you that we can gather together to sit under the means of grace and learn more about who you are and more about your kingdom. I do pray, Lord, as we look at the imminence of your coming kingdom and the 70th week of Daniel, that you'd give us clarity to understand these concepts that are clearly taught in Scripture, but uh, at times can be difficult to grasp in one setting. So we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to understand these things. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Now, dear ones, today as we get into verses 6 through 10 of Revelation 22, we are coming to the section where John is going to be wrapping it up. He's already given us a purview of the new Jerusalem. But now we're going to turn to really what the book of Revelation is about. It's about the imminence of the 70th week of Daniel. So the whole book is bracketed by the idea that the Christ's coming is soon or it's at hand. We see this in Revelation 1.1. We see it in Revelation 22.6. So it forms an inclusio or bookends. Now when I say that Daniel's 70th week is imminent, what do I mean by that? Well, most of you in here probably know Daniel's 70th week. it's the last seven years of the tribulation, and what I would claim to you is that seven years should be conceived of as the coming of Christ. The coming of Christ isn't just a one-day event, but there's multiple days to it, according to Luke 17:26, where Jesus said, "As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the day's plural of the Son of Man." The same passage. Uh, is quoted basically by Jesus in Matthew 24 37 where he says as it was in the days of Noah so it will be at the parousia the coming of the son of man so notice in Luke 17 26 and Matthew 24 37 they're identical except in Luke it's the plural days of the son of man Matthew 24 37 it's the coming of the son of man so the coming of the son of man is synonymous with Daniel's 70th week, and the book of Revelation is about this being an imminent proposition. That's what it's about. So, with that, let's get started right into verse six, where John says this: Revelation 22:6. It says, "And he said to me, now remind. Well, let's everybody remind ourselves that person that's speaking is an angel, and that was the same angel that was showing John." what the inner workings of the New Jerusalem were like. Well, now he's showing him something new. So that's what it means when he says, and he said to me, these words are faithful and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. Now, do you notice here in the beginning of verse 6 where he says these words are faithful and true. Why are those words faithful and true? The words of the book of Revelation... Well, because they come from God. Of course, the Apostle Paul speaks for Christ. And because they are God's words, they must be faithful and true because he is faithful and true. In fact, notice in the box on the screen, does everyone see the and on the screen? In Greek, that's a chi. And there are different usages of chi or and. This is what's called, uh, it's a little technical, but it's called an exegetical use of chi. And what that simply means is it's explaining... What has just preceded. So, a way of rendering this, you could say these words are faithful and true, namely because the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. So, that's a relationship. Why are these words faithful and true? Because they come from the Lord who sent the angel to reveal these things. That's why they're faithful and true. So, again, that's an epic ep- exegetical usage of Kai. Okay, so that's what that proves. Now, what's this phrase? Notice right after the box, it says, the God of the spirits of the prophets. When you read that, you think, well, wait a minute, isn't there one Holy Spirit? Well, of course, that would be with a capital S in our English Bible. But here, even the New American Standard Bible recognizes that the spirits isn't a re- reference to the Holy Spirit, but it's a reference to the spirits of the men, the prophets or the apostles who wrote scripture. Okay, so remember, every human being is made up of two aspects. We have a material and an immaterial portion. We believe here at Gospel of Grace Fellowship something called dichotomy, that people are both body and soul. Soul and spirit, we've proven in other messages, are used interchangeably. So there is a material portion of us, our body, and there's an immaterial portion. So what's being stated here then is that these prophets were moved by God. In fact, we have a passage that shows us this very thing earlier in Revelation 10. Turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 10, verse 7. I want you to see that even in Revelation itself, we see the prophets are moved by God to speak on His behalf. So the spirits then are the human spirits, not the Holy Spirit. Revelation 10, 7, please turn to that. And as you turn to it, remember, this was prior to the seventh trumpet being broken and the reason that's significant is because the seventh trumpet led to the seven bowls, which culminates the wrath of god it comes to fruition so that's why you're going to see what's spoken here it says but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel when he is about to sound then the mystery of god is finished notice the culmination as he preached to his servants the prophets. So notice, as he preached to the servants, his prophets, God spoke to his prophets. And here I think prophet really should refer to anyone who speaks for God, whether they be an Old Testament prophet, whether they be a New Testament apostle, whether they be a New Testament prophet. For example, I would claim that Mark would be an example of a prophet. He wrote scripture, and yet he was not an apostle. Um, He was linked, of course, to Peter's apostolic authority. Okay, so the prophets then are human prophets, and the spirits are their spirits. Now, let me give you another example. Turn your Bibles to 2 Peter 1.21. 2 Peter 1.21. Turn your Bibles there. I just want you to see that God moves human beings to speak on His behalf. 2 Peter 1.21. And as you turn there, this is a very significant passage because it shows us That no one is entitled to their own interpretation. Why? Because God, the author of scripture, grounds the meaning. Bob was talking about that. Was it last week or the week before? About authorial intent. We as evangelicals have to believe that the one who defines the meaning of a text is not the reader, it's the author. How many times have you been at a Bible study where they'll say, well, what does it mean to you? Well, that's the wrong question to ask. The the correct question is what does the text mean? Okay, Let me give you a simple analogy. I've used this before, but for new people, think about my wife writes me a grocery list. Go get milk, eggs, and bread. That's what it says. Go get these things. I come back with a candy bar and a six-pack of root beer. And I say, well, that's the way I interpreted it. Do you think she's going to let me get away with that? No, because she, being the author, grounded the meaning of the text. Now, you say, well, that's just a simple grocery list. It's still in writing. And we're just reading things that God intended to convey to us. He's the one who grounds the meaning. If my wife won't let me get away with, as the reader de- redefining the meaning, how much less will God allow it? In fact, one of the passages that Bob really helped quench some of my concerns when I was at uh, Bethel Seminary—they were all postmodern. I be- almost became delirious because every class you went into, "We can't know, we can't know, we can't know." And Bob just kicked their door in and put up John 12:48. He says, well, how can that be true when Jesus says, this is that which will judge you on the last day, the very words that I have spoken will be your judge? Well, if Christ is going to judge us according to what he's revealed in his scripture, well, then it's not something that's going to be morphing, is it? It's going to be a constant. The author grounds the meaning of the text, not the reader. Well, we see that in 2 Peter 1.21. Notice it says, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So that's exactly what John is saying here when he says the God of the spirits of the prophets. He's talking about the fact that they were moved by God to speak his very word. Okay, so that's what that's saying. Now, notice in red, this is very significant. The angel came to show his bondservants The things which must soon take place. I cannot reiterate how significant that phrase in red is. The things that must soon take place is referring to all the things within the 70th week of Daniel. And this is what brackets as an inclusio the entire book of Revelation. The entire book of Revelation is about that. Now, let me show you where this is borrowed from, though, in the Old Testament. Please turn your Bibles to Daniel 2.28. Please turn your Bibles there. And as you're turning to Daniel 2.28, let me just explain the significance of Daniel 2 and why Revelation is built off of it. So please turn your Bibles to Daniel 2.28. And as you're turning there, let me tell you how this went down. In Daniel chapter 2, remember Nebuchadnezzar, I believe he was in his second year as king. And he's, of course, is this pagan ruler over pagan Babylon. But God had given him a dream. And this in this dream he sees this vision of a statue. And the statue represents the four successive kingdoms that would come about prior to the Antichrist kingdom and then prior to the Messianic kingdom. So the four kingdoms that were represented were the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Greco, the Greek empire and then the Roman empire. But then if you remember there were ten toes in the statue that represented Antichrist kingdom which was an offshoot of the Roman empire. But then after that in the vision a stone representing the Messiah's kingdom would come and crush the statue and it would remain forever. Now the reason this is so significant when we get to Daniel 2.28 Daniel is given the interpretation not only the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, but he's given the interpretation. Why? Because he speaks for God. He's a prophet. And so he tells Nebuchadnezzar what the dream means. And you see here in Daniel 2.28 something very significant. Read what it says, and I'm only going to read the first section of it. This is part A, I call it, Daniel 2.28a. Notice it says, However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. This is Daniel speaking. And he is made known to King Nebuchadnezzar The things which must take place in the last days. Okay, so notice that last phrase. In the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it is word for word identical to what you see in the red here, except one change. Notice here, it says the things that must take place soon. But in Daniel 2.28, it's the things that must take place in the last days. So in Daniel's day, this coming messianic kingdom that would rule forever is pushed off to the last days. But now in Revelation, it is soon. That the, the noun that's being used there, tacos, literally can be rendered, it is at hand. It is imminent. Well, why? Because you and I are living in the last days. I can see you've got something, Bob.
1: Well, I, was, I just looked up the must in Greek. It's day. Yeah, the
0: divine necessity. Which
1: generally, in this kind of context... You know it's divine necessity, exactly, and that would certainly uh lay the axe to the root of this whole open theism mm-hmm. great boyd uh God doesn't know right it's going to happen Good or point. everything's contingent right it may or may not happen, depending on what what angels and demons and humans decide right so. We can believe that God is in control of his own universe. Amen. And that these things must take place. Yeah. But what's not revealed is when. Exactly. So what's quickly mean?
0: Yeah, we don't know.
1: Suddenly at any moment, but we don't know when that will be. We don't know the time, And right. time is certainly not the same to God as, who's eternal as it is to us. So it seems like a long time to us. Yeah. Since the time of Christ, but. Right. this could be at, at any time
0: yeah amen well said so Bob's pointing out then that day that must he's exactly right it shows that God is in charge of his universe in open theism the claim is that God doesn't know the contingent actions or thoughts within man well this rules that out no he does and he uses all things to bring about his purposes one thing that Bob pointed out also is that even though this is soon how soon is it we don't know and here's why. Because there's not a date for the second coming of Christ. There's not a date for the rapture. So if you said, well, you know what? My birthday is soon. You have a fixed date for that. Mine is on February 22nd. I can look at the calendar and see how soon, I can look at how soon it is. But remember in Matthew 24:36, Jesus says no one knows the day or the hour. And when he says no one knows the day or the hour, he's not just talking about the 24-hour period or a 60-minute window. He's using the day of the Lord and the hour of trial. He's using, there's synonymous parallelism. So he's talking about no one has any foggy idea when this time period's gonna break forth. You don't know. The date isn't given, but it's always soon, it's at hand. Yeah, Lonnie. Um,
2: you mentioned there in that verse six. Yep. Uh, God of the spirits of yep. the prophets. How important is that? Because my translation doesn't have spirits. It just has prophets. It, uh Let's see. It says, uh, then he said to me, these words are faithful and true, and the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place.
1: Spirits is in the Greek. Yeah. I got it in front of me. Numaton, spirits. Yeah, plural. It's in the Greek. They They may have just decided that that is... What, what From autonomy? Uh,
0: yeah. The, sometimes what the English translator will do is they'll, they'll try to help the English reader understand what's being said if they think it's a difficult phrase. Um, what, what version do you have? Uh, uh, it's a New King James version. Okay. So they may have tried to give you a gloss to help you understand that this isn't the Holy Spirit being referred to, but it's the Holy... The, God is moving the prophets... So they thought maybe that, I I would disagree with that type of translation. I would say, no, you translate it as it is and let the reader understand. However, that may be a gloss there. There also could be a manuscript issue. Um, I wasn't aware of one. I didn't see any in the critical text, but maybe I missed it. But I don't think so. I think that that should be there. In other words, some texts will, there'll be debates about a given word, whether it's part of the original manuscripts or not. I don't think that that is one. I think that's a gloss that the New King James Version is given mm-hmm. to try to help the reader not misunderstand the Holy Spirit rather than the prophets being moved by God.
2: Well, I wonder if the sense? King James
0: has that. That's a very good point because you know what? The New King James Version does follow the Texas Receptus, yeah. and that could be maybe a manuscript problem. So, Yeah, very good question, though. We'll, we'll look into that. Thank you. Yeah, now, any other questions? So here's the idea the things which must soon take place are really the things from Revelations chapter 6 to Revelation 22. So remember, the book of Revelation, you'll, and by the way, this is important because, let me explain, years ago I'm at a Bible study at a CBS, and I'm at a church that doesn't have our views, and they were teaching the book of Revelation, and they said, oh, the book of Revelation is laid out in seven equal components. Well, the problem with that is it sounds really neat. It's all tied up in seven equal po- components, but that's not what John says. John gives what's called the programmatic verse of the entire book. In Revelation Revelation 119, he says, the things that were, the things that are, and the things that will be. That's the structure of the book. That's the structure that John, the author, who is inspired by God, gives. The things that were, Revelation chapters 1 through 2. The things that are, Revelation chapters 3 through 5. And the things that will be are Revelation chapters 6 through 22. When here we see the things which must soon take place, it's focusing on the last seven years that are given in specific detail from Revelation chapter 6 to Revelation chapter 22. Now, one thing I want you to see is this is how the whole book of Revelation is bookended. Does everyone know what an inclusio is? An inclusio are just bookends. Okay, so it's a literary device to show the continuity of thought. So you have a common theme at the beginning and a common theme at the end. The whole book of Revelation is an inclusio for the things that must soon take place. Notice what John said, Revelation 1.1. This is how he begins. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants, the things which must soon take place, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John. Notice again that phrase, the things which must soon take place. That's the ends of the entire book. Now, let me do a little bit of apologetics with you. How many in here have ever heard of preterism? And I know Bob and several of you have. Well, preterism, full-blown preterism is heresy. Full-blown preterism says that the events of the coming of Christ occurred spiritually in 70 AD. Now, there are other scholars who are what are called partial preterists they believe that there's still a coming of Christ. In fact, a man like R.C. Sproul would hold to that position. But let me explain how that relates to this passage. A partial preterist who's still within the fold, like R.C. Sproul, and I love the man dearly, I learned so much from him, but he would say, when it says in Revelation 1.1, the things that must soon take place, he would say, aha, that must mean that some of these events must have occurred soon, In the lifespan, of, for example, of the apostles, therefore, some of these events must have occurred in 70 A.D. Here's the problem with that. The problem with that is when he claims Revelation 1.1 refers to things that are going to take place within 70 A.D., in order not to be a heretic, R.C. Sproul says, I still believe in the second coming of Christ. So in chapters 20 through 22... They are all about the second coming, which is going to be in the future. But notice in Revelation 22, 6, the same phrase is used. The things that must take place soon. So soon, what you have to understand was soon doesn't mean it had to happen within any certain time frame. But it is always at hand when you're in the last days. When did you and I enter into the last days? At the first advent of Christ. So as soon as the first advent of Christ, including his resurrection and ascension, was over, it ushered in the last days. Remember the Holy Spirit was poured out? And once that last days comes, the coming of Christ can occur at any moment. That's the doctrine of imminence. Imminence means that an event can occur at any moment, but it does not have to happen within any certain time frame. An imminent event could happen one second from now or a thousand years from now. All you know is it will occur, and it can occur at any moment, but it's not confined within any certain time frame. That's the doctrine of imminence that is taught in Scripture. Now, let's try to get our minds around this idea of the last days. Let's try to understand that. One of the most important things to understand the last days is to refute some of the bad ideas in evangelicalism, namely that the last days began in 1948. I can't tell you how many otherwise good Bible teachers I've heard say that the last days began in 1948. Well, that, by the way, 1948, that was where the, we had the reestablishment of Israel. Well, the question is, well, where do we find that in Scripture? Well, we don't. The Scripture is very clear that the last days began with the first advent of Jesus Christ. Okay, and I'll show you that passage. Now, I'm not claiming that 1948 isn't significant. It is. Providentially, we can see that God's hand is still with Israel. And he's going to bring out all his promises for them. Think about it. There used to be Hittites, Canaanites, Amorites, Amalekites, Jebusites, on and on, all the ites, but they are no more, right? But we still have Israelites. So that shows us providentially that, yes, God's hand is there. He will protect them and bring them to faith one day. But it's not the ushering in of the last days. So let's look at Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, where we see the ushering in of the last days. Here's a passage that shows us when they began. The writer of Hebrews says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions, and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So notice the last days began at the first advent of Jesus Christ. God has spoken fully through him. He is the mediator of the new covenant. He is the one on the Mount of Transfiguration that shows he is the new Moses, the greater Moses that was prophesied in Deuteronomy 18.15 when the Lord said, this is my son listen to him. He's the one who speaks for God in the last days. Now let's pull out our pointer here. Well, Let's put, put this together then. So Daniel, we read Daniel 2.28 and he makes a prophecy about the coming messianic kingdom. But here's the cross and think of the cross here on the timeline. This is, By the way this is my attempt at a timeline in case you didn't know. So the cross represents the first advent of Christ just generically all of his his earthly ministry, his death, burial, resurrection ascension, the sending of the spirit. There it is. That's the, the first advent. Well obviously Daniel wrote prior to that. So for Daniel... The last days were pushed off into the future. Okay, because why? Because the cross hadn't happened, the first advent of Christ. But in Revelation 1.1, it goes from the things that must take place in the last days to the things that must take place soon. Why? Because now we're in the last days. And once you're in the last days, by the way, this little diagram here, notice this little marker, this is the last seven years, the 70th week of Daniel, the seven-year tribulation period. Notice the middle point is the three-and-a-half-year mark. So here's the point. In the last days, where is the 70th week on the continuum? We don't know. In other words, you and I, think of where my marker is here. We could be right here on the continuum, and that 70th week may not come for another 100 years. Or we might be right here, and it happens tonight, or it happens tomorrow morning or next week, next Tuesday at 1 right before you get into your tuna sandwich and all of a sudden you're raptured you don't know, it is always at hand, it is always soon it is always the next event on God's redemptive calendar I'm sorry we got a question there, Linda well not actually a question but just um, something that's coming up tomorrow, I don't know if you've heard what the Sanhedrin is planning to do tomorrow, no I don't know what what are those rascals up to, Hanukkah um, so they 're planning to um, dedicate the altar to the third temple oh wow, and okay. they also sent out a letter to uh, the seventy nations, so basically the whole world inviting them to come, which has created like this huge earthquake, like in Israel hmm. for so many think this as blasphemy because they 're inviting sure all the Gentiles to come yeah, so there 's no place, they haven't said where it's going to happen yet because they know the violence and stuff that could right. happen. So, wow, just kind of pay attention to tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, Linda, thank you for sharing that. Well, that's one thing that we see. There's no events to tip us off as to when the 70th week comes, but those types of things, for example, the reestablishment of the temple... We know will occur in the seventieth week. Why? Because the Antichrist puts himself up into the temple and declares himself to be God. He performs what's called the abomination that causes desolation. So, I'm sorry, Bob, you got something.
1: Well, um, I've been listening to that whole series on Hebrews yeah. that we did on the radio. Yeah. So we can write new descriptions, and it's right. been good for me to listen to it again. We're just just about done. Yeah. But it's pretty clear that in during the time the book of Hebrews was written, the temple was still functional. Right. Okay? There's some good reasons to believe that. Yeah. Mainly, one of the warnings in Hebrews was that they wouldn't go back to temple Judaism. Right. And one of the things that was tempting them to go back was the visibility of it, the pageantry, Hmm. the smells and the bells and the tangibility. But if you look at Hebrews twelve, I just edited what that we did on Hebrews twelve. Uh, what the author of Hebrews saying, you haven't come to a mount that can't be touched. Right. See Sinai, they saw all of the fire and lightning, and everything, and they were scared and even if a beast touched it would die. But you've come to the heavenly mount Zion that it describes things, but we can't see any of them. Yeah. So there was a and that Jesus is the one predicted in Psalm 110 as the priest after the order of Melchizedek.
0: Exactly. That his
1: priesthood is superior to the Levitical ones. Right. So that was a big deal in Hebrews. And Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple. Amen. Which already happened now. Right, right. But it hadn't happened in Hebrews. Written. Now, I've taught through Revelation yeah. some years ago and also First John. right. I believe John wrote after that time. I do too, 95. And that's yeah. the strongest evidence is yep. that John wrote after the temple was already destroyed. Yeah. So he's predicting something beyond what Jesus said would happen. Wow. That one stone. Absolutely.
0: On right. Well said. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, I was thinking as you're saying that, Bob, think about the temple that existed prior to 70 AD and the risk of Christians going back to it. Even if they went to temple... They'd still be apostates. In other words, you couldn't find holiness in the temple. Remember Jesus in Matthew 23, he pronounces a curse upon them, judgment. He says, You will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's from Psalm 11826. It's a messianic reference. So the temple lost the glory of God, Christ. Well, that happened earlier. Remember when the Israelites were sinning in the Old Testament? The glory of God left the temple, and where did he go? He went out to the Mount of Olives. I'm talking about Ezekiel chapters 10 and 11. And where did the, the Holy Spirit, or excuse me, God's Spirit departed from the Mount of Olives. He went up the Shekinah glory. Well, Jesus follows that same pattern. He leaves the temple desolate. He is the glory of God incarnate. He goes to the Mount of Olives later on in that week. And where does He ascend from? He ascends from there. So you see the same pattern. So the point is, the temple's been abandoned. The temple isn't where you find God. That's what Jesus was saying to the Samaritan woman. If you want to worship, you worship not on any mountain. It's not Gerizim, and it's not Jerusalem. It's spirit and truth. Just as Bob is saying, we come to the new Jerusalem, the Jerusalem above. Now, when Christ returns, he will set his earthly kingdom here on this planet for a 1,000 years, followed by the eternal states. But it's not here, and it's not now. So let me come now, get back to this timeline. Let's tie the last days in. And the first advent and the second advent to Daniel's 70th week. Remember Daniel made a prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. of It was called a 70 weeks prophecy. Now it's confusing because the weeks just means years. So it's literally 70 times 7 years or 490 years. So remember what Daniel's concern was. Is he knew from the prophet Jeremiah uh, chapter 25 verse 11 that when they were in Babylonian captivity, it would last for 70 years. He knew that from a prophet, Jeremiah. Well, they began the deportation in 605 B.C. So around 538 B.C., he's getting excited because the 70 years is almost done. Well, he prays to God, and in Daniel 9, his prayer, if I could summarize it, is we're wretched sinners as Israelites, you're a great God, we don't deserve anything but for your sake because we bear your name and because the holy city of Jerusalem bears your name, please remember the covenant promises and reestablish us. So God answers that prayer in this magnificent prophecy. And so he, there's a play on the 70. They were in Babylonian captivity for how long? 70 years. 70 years. Why? Because every 7 years they were to allow their land to remain fallow. They weren't to, they weren't to work the land. Why? Because it had to have its Sabbath rest. Well, because they didn't believe, the Israelites, they didn't obey. So God says, you won't believe, therefore you won't obey. Well, I'm going to make the land have its Sabbath rest. You're going to have 10 Sabbath rest in Babylon. 10 times 7 is 70. Well, when the answer comes to Daniel the prophet, when the Messianic kingdom will come and Israel will be established, there's a play on the 70. It's going to be 70 times 7 or 490 years. Are you with me? So, the first 483 years, the time of the decree when the the prophecy begins, was from a decree to rebuild Jerusalem and its walls. You can read about that decree in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. But that decree was given on March 5th, 444 B.C. Remember, in Hebrew, they use a 30 day month. They use a lunar calendar. So, if you do the math, the 483 of the 490 years ends up being 173,880 days from that March 5th date it ends up being the very day that Jesus Christ comes in to Jerusalem is the day that he's cut off in Daniel's prophecy 483 of the 490 years Comes to the very day, Lamb Selection Day, the 10th day of Nisan. Messiah comes riding into Jerusalem, and he's the lamb. For hundreds of years, the Jews on the 10th day of the month were selecting the lamb without blemish. He comes in on that very day. On the very day, the 10th day, Lamb Selection Day. We call it the triumphal entry. That's a bunch of hooey. It was Lamb Selection Day. And he's saying, I'm the lamb, choose me. They rejected him. They rejected him. But the very day was also prophesied numerically in Daniel, 483 years to the very day he's cut off. Subsequently, he dies. Okay. Now, what's interesting is what do you have left? You have seven years left. That's the 70th week of Daniel, and that's the second advent. So the first 483 years had to do with the first advent. The second advent is about the last seven years. And the last seven years is bracketed by Christ coming for the church to spare us from the wrath of God. And then it's coming with the church to defeat his enemies at the battle of Armageddon and to set up his kingdom. But this whole time period is the 70th week of Daniel. It is imminent. It is at hand. It is what Revelations chapter 6 or 22 are all about. And it is going to come soon. Which means imminent at any moment. That's the point. Yes, Eric.
2: Yeah, and I've, I've, I've thought a lot about, you know, this getting back to Daniel 9. You know, the Church Age you see that prophecy was being being given to daniel it 's for the Jewish people, and so he he goes into detail on all of it, yeah. except the church age. you see because in other words, Jews to be saved need to come to faith in Christ. We know that Amen. but he was the angel was talking to Daniel and daniel to, to the Jewish people, so that's, that is, I've, I've wrestled with why the gap. Yeah. Know, why the church age? Why didn't, why didn't the angel tell Daniel all about it? And the best thing that I can come up with is he was speaking to the Jewish people. Yeah. And so he didn't go into detail about the church age. He went right, well, well into, the, right into the 70th week, and, and that's right. what we're getting. Yeah.
0: And in the text, and we'll maybe have time to read it later, there is an implied gap between the two. What's very interesting is there is a coming ruler who's going to make sacrilege of this temple. Now even Paul put that future, so in other words it couldn't be Antiochus Epiphanes the fourth, the the Greek ruler who did that in the B.C. era, the, the 168 B.C. That couldn't be that. It was not fulfilled. 70 A.D. you never had a Roman ruler who set himself up in the temple and declared himself to be God. So it wasn't fulfilled then. So Daniel, was certainly looking at something that was occurring in the last days after the first advent of Christ. It couldn't be 70 A.D. We know John is writing in 95, uh, 25 years after that. So, yeah, well said. And um, let me just say this about, too, the time of the Gentiles. In the Gospels, we have three all-of-it discourses. There's one in Matthew, one in Mark, and one in Luke. The one in Matthew and Mark focus exclusively on the 70th week. Exclusively. Now, that's not a contradiction. What Luke does is he focuses on both. He does talk about 70 A.D. and the destruction of the temple, but he also looks to the future. Matthew and Mark do not, and that's what creates a lot of confusion for people. Matthew and Mark aren't concerned about that. They're concerned exclusively about the 70th week of Daniel. And those all of the discourses are in Matthew 24 and in Mark 13. But again, they're focused here, not in 70 A.D. Okay, so with that, um, the reason I point that out is in Luke... Remember, Luke talks about Jerusalem will be trampled until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. The time of the Gentiles is synonymous with the last days. So the last days you could refer to as the church age, you could refer to it as the time of the Gentiles, or the last days, they're all synonymous. Okay, and that will last until the time is up and God returns his attention towards Israel. Remember, you and I were grafted into their promises. Remember, Romans chapter 11, we were grafted in. All right, so we're the ones through faith in Christ who have drawn near. And one day in the 70th week, he'll bring them to faith in Christ and they'll be drawing near again as well. Okay, now let's look at the blessing here that we see that comes from the book of Revelation. Verses seven through nine, he continues. He says, and behold, I am coming quickly. Now, this is actually Jesus speaking. And I'll show you why we believe that to be the case. Here, he's obviously the one who's gonna be coming. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. Okay. Now, notice here in the very beginning, in verse seven, it says, "And behold," and a lot of times, "Behold," um, it's a wowie. It's pay attention to this, and you often see it in Revelation to show us that some miraculous event is breaking forth. Well, here it's to tip us off to the fact that now Christ Himself is speaking. There's something that is inspiring about Him saying, "I'm coming quickly." Okay, that's what it's to set us off for. So that's how we know now Jesus is speaking. And notice he declares that I am coming quickly. The adverb there for quickly is takus. Remember when we saw the phrase, the things that must take place soon? That's the noun takos. They're related. So when Jesus says I'm coming quickly, there's three options we have for quickly. One, we can say, well, when Jesus comes, he's a sprinter, he's fast, he's not slow. He can run a, a, a 40 and 4.3. He comes quickly. He does what he does quickly. I don't think that's a good reading. I don't think we're, giving, we're being given the metaphysical way in which Christ comes to judge or to save. Okay, are you with me? So I don't think it's about the speed of his coming when he does come. The second option is that some will say, well, this quickly means it has to happen within a very short time period to when it was first written. Again, that's a misunderstanding of the idea of imminence. Quickly, I think, is the third option, which means soon. Just as takos, the noun, meant soon, takous, here the adverb, means soon as in the, the idea of at hand. So Jesus is coming imminently. He's coming quickly in that sense. Okay? Now, notice here this great blessing. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. By the way, let me pull up my pointer again. Notice here this term heeds. That's the term in Greek, te reo. It means to keep or to guard. Okay, I point that out because remember in Revelation 3.10, the great promise to the church at Philadelphia was, because you've been faithful to keep te reo, my word, Jesus says, I will keep or guard you, te reo, from the hour of trial that comes upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. And we see that that is a reference to the protection of the church outside of Daniel 73. We can't enter in because that's the time of God's wrath. Well, here the same verb is being used. Heeds is te So when he says blessed is he who heeds, the idea would be that we keep the word and we guard it. The idea would be not only are we hearers and believers of it, but we're doers of it. That we believe and we act. That would be the idea. A good way of rendering it would be that we guard it within us. We guard it within us by saying, yeah, these things are true, and I'm going to act accordingly. That would be the idea behind that. Now, what does it mean to be blessed? Some scholars will say, well, generically, it just means that someone is happy. But blessedness is more than a feeling. The blessed state that we have as believers isn't contingent upon our mood. The blessed state that we have, I think, is best understood when you understand the opposite, and that is cursed. Who is cursed? Well, a cursed person is anyone who is outside of Jesus Christ because they are still under the wrath of God. Because they don't have their sins forgiven, they don't have atonement, they don't have imputed righteousness, they are cursed. Any single person outside of Christ, no matter how happy they feel no matter how wonderful this world is going for them, they may be the wealthiest man on the planet. They may have the greatest health, the greatest family, the greatest location to ever live on. Every day they wake up with a grin on their face. Outside of Christ, they are as cursed as can be. And you can take the saint, the believer in Jesus Christ, who has suffered more than any person on the planet, who wakes up every day in agony from cancer or hurts, whatever it may be, But because their sins are forgiven, they have the imputed righteousness of Christ and the wrath of God has been appeased through the atonement of Christ, they are blessed. Why? They have eternal life. They have a partaking in the, the new Jerusalem. They're going to be reigning with Christ in His millennial kingdom. They have resurrection to look forward to. Okay, So that's what he means by blessed is he who keeps the words. It simply means blessed are those who believe. But those who believe really act On the words. Now, the other thing I want to point out is notice in the underline, he says, Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Now, that's significant. Why? Well, here the author is calling the book of Revelation a prophecy. Now, there's been a debate in history about the book of Revelation as to how it should be interpreted. Now, let me explain briefly how this goes. There's two camps. One camp are those who say it's all figurative. And they'll, they'll either have an idealistic or historical approach to the book of Revelation. And they'll say there's really idealism here and symbolism because it's apocalyptic literature. Okay, They'll say this is just apocalyptic literature. Now let me explain what apocalyptic literature. In the first century B.C. and slightly before and slightly after, you had a, a group of writings called uh, pseudepigraphical writings, apocryphal writings. And in these apocryphal writings, men were talking about the last days and using very fanciful symbolic language. But here's the difference. In apocalyptic literature, they never told you what their symbols meant. And you don't, do you know why? Because then you could make the symbol mean anything you wanted it to mean. Are you with me? And so therefore, they can never be wrong because if you read the symbol and you read it the wrong way, well, then someone could say, well, they just didn't read it the right way. You could always change it. It always morphs. The book of Revelation is not apocalyptic literature. It does use apocalyptic techniques, but John himself declares it to be a prophecy. Now, here's the difference. In this prophecy, in the book of Revelation, anytime time you come to a symbol, John tells you what the symbol means. So, for example, you come to the dragon. He doesn't leave you hanging. He says, the dragon is Satan. You talk about the lampstands. He says, well, the lampstands are the seven churches. Any time you come to a symbol, he just tells you what it means. Well, that's not apocalyptic, apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature. They just left you hanging. You had no idea what the symbols meant, but that's not this prophecy. Yeah, I'm sorry, Scott, go ahead. I, I think uh, Nostradamus would be a really good example <laughs> of apocalyptic yeah, very, very, very good, because, Scott. It's very much like that, where you can read into it anything you want. That's not the way this prophecy is. Now, by the way, the book of Revelation, one of the reasons I love this book is because it uses the Old Testament more than any other book in the New Testament. I think there are 404 verses in Revelation, 83% of them contain direct quotations or allusions to the Old Testament. It's fantastic. The reason I mention that is if you're not told what a symbol means, it's a direct allusion to an Old Testament passage, which tells you what it means. So here's how prophecy works in the book of Revelation. Either a symbol is given and you're given directly by John what the symbol is or it's an allusion to the Old Testament which tells you what the symbol is. You're not left hanging. This is a prophecy. Therefore, it can be known and it's not left to subjective readers but it's grounded by an objective author, namely God who spoke through his apostle John. Yes. Yeah, I
2: actually, you know, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, Bob was preaching th- or teaching in Acts and, and referring to that verse in Luke and I can't think of where it is, is a section in Luke where Jesus says listen to me you know, and we're to listen carefully. This is a great example the Revelation has more references to the Old Testament than anything else so we need to understand Yes. if we don't understand it it's because we're not listening carefully and reading carefully
0: Well but we so have to here, do that. Yeah, you know, and I think about it as you talk about listen. Remember in the Old Testament, the famous Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, Deuteronomy 6.4. Notice it says, hear, O Israel. In other words, listen. Um, you hear the term in, um, in Greek as a kuo, where we get our term acoustics. And Bob and I have talked about this both in the Old and the New Testament when the idea of hearing, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. It's not just hearing the sound waves go through the ears and go, okay, I heard that. But it's always the idea of hearing with belief. And so, like on the Mount of Transfiguration, when God testifies, this is my beloved son, hear him, listen to him with belief. Yes.
2: I I wish I could remember exactly where it is in Luke, you know, but Jesus has a warning in there, too, where he says something to the effect of, you know, even what he does have will be taken away. Uh, I don't know if you guys are remembering where this is. This is the difference between an amateur and a professional. I can't tell you exactly where it is. It's in Luke. um, And I was just looking at it and, and kind of thinking about it just the other day. So he's, t- he's commanding us to listen, Yeah. but then saying, and those who don't listen carefully, even what they th- do have will be taken away. And I, I read that to you know, people think they have, people yeah. sitting in churches who are not really saved Amen. who think they're saved, you know, and all of this. Well, uh, so, you uh, know, a passage,
0: I, I don't think I have the one in mind that you're thinking of, but remember in John 10, 27 through 28, where Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Remember, there are some who don't believe, and he says the reason they don't hear my voice is because they're not of my sheep, right? So again, that cool that hearing is hearing with belief. And you're absolutely right. One of the takeaways from the book of Revelation is that we have to hear in faith what God is saying to us, that these things really are indeed true. Absolutely. Now, any other questions or comments? We've got about five minutes, and we've got to end early because we're going to have our routine here our um, juggling routine to the prodigal son. And we got about five minutes, yeah. Okay, so let me just hit one more thing. Notice here in verse 8, John comes into a new section now. Jesus has stopped speaking, now John comes back. Now, one of the reasons we know that, notice he says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. Does everybody see that in verse 8? One of the reasons we know that verse 8 is a change is This is what's called an asynthetic clause. Now, what is that? Notice there's no and here. A lot of times the narrative is brought about by and this, and this, and this. Notice you have and behold. That continues the narrative. But here there's no conjunction, which is like a paragraph break. Okay, now a paragraph break, we've got something new. That's called an asynthetic clause. It simply means without a conjunction. That's what it, that it has to do with. Okay, so we know now there's a change. And here John is speaking again. He says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. So here we see that John is a prophet who heard and saw the very words that God wanted him to put in the Scriptures through seeing these visions. Now, I want you to remember there was a text that John had written earlier, 1 John 1.1, where he mentions that this revelation that was given to them was objective. This isn't some subjective feeling where you know, I think maybe God wants this. Or maybe God wants me to write that. This is objective. Who had, uh, I think Norm had 1 John one. There's Norm.
2: What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have beheld and our hands have handled concerning
0: the word of life. I'm sorry, could you do that one more time? I I didn't hear.
2: Okay. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life.
0: Wow. Notice here then John is talking about the objective nature. Why am I so hot? I'm starting to talk like you, Bob, like an engineer. I'm so hot and trim levels, and there we go. <laughs> Trust me, I don't know what Bob knows with this stuff, but, but notice what Norm just read. That's 1 John 1.1. There's three objective things that the apostles did. They heard Christ, they saw Him, and they felt Him. So the apostolic eyewitness then should be believed. Why? Because it's objective. Now how many times do you hear people in our day and age, they'll say, you know, the Lord was speaking to me. Well, is it really the Lord or the pizza they had last night? The indigestion, right? Well, the point is the apostles aren't relegated to that category. They spoke objectively. Why? Because they saw, they heard, and they handled the living God. They were taught personally by Jesus Christ. I always think when I read that, remember in um, John 20, 28, remember Thomas doesn't believe and all of a sudden, Jesus shows him the scars, right? And what was Thomas's response? Doubting Thomas, he says, my Lord and my God. It was objective. Brothers and sisters, our faith rests not in some subjective inkling that human beings had, but on the objective standards that the apostolic eyewitnesses had. They saw these things. They heard these things. They actually touched Christ. They were with him. That's one of the reasons you and I can believe everything in the Word of God. So with that, we're out of time. Uh, this time, we've got 10 minutes to set up. But let's, let's close in prayer and we'll pick this up where we left off when we come back next week. Let's, let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, we do thank you that you've given us the objective Word of God. That you haven't relegated us to just having subjective inklings. To know that these things are true. To know that one day you are coming again and this coming is imminent for us, to bring us home into glory. I do pray today that you would help us to think about these things so that we may live godly lives, untangled by the sins that so easily entangle us. And today I I do pray for this juggling group, Lord. I pray for all of the kids as they minister to us about the prodigal son, that you would be glorified, that your name would be exalted. And I pray, Lord, that you would bless their efforts. We pray these things.